and welcome to Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator. My name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist and scholar. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. So um, what is episode 13's topic, E? So we wanted to sort of continue going off uh, what we talked about in episode 12, uh, which is when we talked about the history of racism and physiognomy in cartooning. Um, and what I suggested is that we focus in on sort of the uh, the fat phobic specific qualities of physiognomy or the ways that fatness has been linked to immorality or unhealth or being like bad or ugly or whatever using sort of the same tools uh, that physiognomy uses. And do you want to give us uh, the definition for physiognomy, Kathy? Yeah. So um, just a refresher from episode 12. Um, so physiognomy is um, from the 1700s and it spans to today, unfortunately. And it's the physiognomy is the pseudoscience of judging character from facial features. So if you think about that, that's like a lot of character design. The concept of character design is that the physical presence of a character somehow creates their personality, whether they're good or evil, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. E's idea, and I agreed with it, is to sort of more talk about the way that fatness is stereotyped in images and not necessarily... Um, historically, but also extremely presently. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to also sort of say before we got into it, um, I'm, uh, we're both going to be using the word fat a lot as we talk about this, right? Yeah. And there's a little bit of a pushback against the word fat sometimes. I think that is mostly well-meaning that the word fat is in itself a negative word or can only be used negatively, but it's just a word. Yeah. <laughs> and the way I'm using it and the way Kathy's using it today is going to be as like a word that just means, you know, a body with weight on it um, or like weight, basically. And putting the word itself into a negative light actually ends up sort of having the opposite effect of like making it more stigmatized, right? As opposed to it, just letting it be like a value neutral. Yeah. And this is actually something I've written about and something I actually practice in a classroom, as I'm sure a lot of Art teachers have experienced mm -hmm. kids like to make jokes about fat people. And so it's something that I end up having to address a lot in my classroom. And I sort of equate the word fat with the word gay, where it's not necessarily negative, but it can be used in a mean way. And But it's not necessarily a mean word. It's a descriptive word. Right, right. It's just important to me to lay that out from the get-go. Absolutely. In terms of like how we're using these words, as always. Thank you, E. Yeah. Um, so I will be starting us off. I usually, my segment sort of covers context and historical context for topics. Um, today, I'm going to be going over a sort of brief summary of how fatness has been linked to immorality or impurity, which, you know, continues our previous conversation in episode 12. Um, I want to also sort of talk about... Uh, what is called the aesthetic frame of fat phobia uh, in this like source that I'll be addressing and um, some just some analysis of like uh, common depictions and tropes similar like media analysis media studies uh, perspectives um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be focusing so much on the medical side of things 
aside from like going over it briefly with the historical stuff, there's like a lot of different ways to address the topic as broad as this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to focus more uh, as it relates to cartooning and uh, aesthetic and narrative depictions than uh, the medical sociological side of things, which is also uh, important, but time constraints. Mm. All right, so I'm going to start us off with, this is a little bit, um, it's a kind of a long a section. I I did my best to condense it. Um, I'll try to condense it a little more, but I wanted to start it off because I feel like it is a very, very comprehensive uh, explanation sort of of like the history of discourse around fatness. <laughs> so this is from Killer Fat, Media, Medicine and Morals and the quote unquote obesity epidemic by uh, Natalie Borrow from 2012. So she writes, the discourses of fatness prevalent in a particular era can reveal much about the social, moral and economic anxieties of the day, such as concern over the roles of women, the place of the medical profession, suspicion about immigrants, minorities and the poor and fears about sexuality, the vulnerability of children, economic stability and public health. These anxieties and more can be seen in the constructions of the contemporary obesity epidemic, but they can also be seen at different times in earlier understandings of body size. And um, when she says the phrase obesity epidemic, uh, which I think will come up a couple of times in this episode, mm-hmm. um, that that's like a, a contemporary invented idea that uh, like being fat past a certain point, basically. Mm is a quote-unquote epidemic um, and, like, thus needs to be addressed medically. I have a question. So is obesity related to the BMI body mass index in any manner? Yes. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but, yeah, it's very strongly related or, like, very strongly associated with uh, BMI, which uh, is... Is nonsense, right? Yeah, has been debunked since it's... (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) I think that's important for everyone to know. BMI is nonsense. So the first, quote unquote, American Weight Watchers began in America in uh, the 1830s with uh, Reverend Sylvester Graham and his disciples. Uh, Borrow writes, for Graham and others like him, excesses in food and sex were forms of self-pollution born of civilization. In addition to diet of bland foods, Graham's crusade for food purity and physical and spiritual health also hinged on the participation of women, particularly mothers. For Graham, the battle against excesses in food would be fought within the home at the table by women. Graham's focus mm. on food simplicity and purity generally reflected the moral reformism at the time and the need to defeat the evil of gluttony. Mm. Other religiously driven health reformers like John Harvey Kellogg of Kellogg Cereal took up Graham's focus on food purity and health and continued to tout a link between poor food quality, ill health, and weak moral fiber well into the 20th century. Mm. Beginning in the early 20th century, the burgeoning American concern with weight control spread mainly through diet advice appearing in popular women's magazines. The women were the focus of this weight loss advice, the idea of a muscular aesthetic for men, and a general devaluation of any kind of fleshiness were gaining ground. As with the previous period of moral reform, the target of this new trend towards slimness was white, middle, and upper-class women. With the decline of the corset and the rise of the flapper in the 1920s, there also arose a valuing of quote-unquote natural thinness. 
This aesthetic ushered in a new standard of beauty for women, and thinness became a necessary component of quote-unquote boy-catching and marriageability. In addition, as agriculture and industrial food production expanded, thinness became desirable as the association of fatness with industrialism, wealth, and prosperity began to break down. Um, so there's a lot to impact there, but the main fo- thing to take away is the focus on white upper and middle class women and how it all this comes from periods of moral reform. And these are linked to these ideas of morality. So we're seeing this like early establishment of this link between like what your body looks like and your moral sense. Mm. Although prior to World War II, some patent medicines and tonics for weight loss existed. It was after World War II that obesity became more fully medicalized, building on a moral model of fatness. And with an aesthetic of slimness already in place, a model in which obesity was designated as a disease to be treated through medical intervention began to emerge. So this is um, the mid 1900s, right? Okay. Sort of like around that time period is, is when we're seeing like the emergence of obesity as a disease, quote unquote. Mm. Um, the medicalization of obesity hinged on the development of ideal height and weight charts by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, MetLife. Suspecting that weight might be one easily measured physical trait predictive of mortality, in the 1940s, statisticians for MetLife set about charting the death rates of its policyholders using a height-to-weight index. The table MetLife arrived at was based on the weight at which a person had the longest lifespan for a given height range. Of course, the tables were not based on a random sample of the U.S. population, but on retrospective data from MetLife customers who were far more likely to be white, male, and middle class than the general population. Mm -hmm. Although they provided a quick and easily intelligible way of classifying people on the basis of weight for the purpose of assigning risk for the insurance industry, the tables also appealed to doctors and public health officials looking for more and for easier ways to measure health. By the (laughs) 1950s, The MetLife height and weight tables had been institutionalized as the way to measure overweight and underweight and maintain this hegemony for several decades. Though the methods for measurement and classification of body weight have changed a great deal since the 1950s, the normative and scientific measurement of weight remains a permanent feature in discussions of weight and weight loss. So this is a huge idea, right? This idea that um, this link between weight being tied to morality basically the idea that like being overweight means you're going to die sooner Mm. comes from an insurance company Mm -hmm. trying to make a table to predict which of their clients would die sooner yeah so i won't say who but i have a relative who worked in life insurance for a really long time and they told me at this point in the 2000s there are four categories of people of insurance policies that they have Mm -hmm. it's men Women, men who smoke, and women who smoke. So it's still um, something that exists in in life insurance, at least. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing that's so interesting is that, like, so we're seeing this historical emergence through moral reformation that being overweight is a sign of bad moral fiber. And then capitalism comes in there (laughs) uh, through these insurance companies They're saying that if they give life insurance to someone who's going to die sooner, they're going to charge more. Right. Yes. So we're like seeing this like tie between like these these two non-scientific sources that are getting picked up and rolled into the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. 
with simple measurements for overweight in place, along with the linkage of overweight to cardiovascular disease, it was but a short leap to intensified medicalization of obesity. Although doctors had long acknowledged the intractability of fatness, the association of fatness with the nation's number one cause of death set the stage for medical partnerships with government and increased funding for obesity research, which has only expanded in recent years. A crucial turning point in the history of fat in America and ultimately in the obesity epidemic is the development and ascendancy of the BMI as the gold standard for the measurement and categorization of weight. The BMI was originally created in the 1830s by Belgian astronomer Adolf Quetelet in an effort to apply laws of mathematical probability to humans. Quetelet did not consider it to be a measure of health, but rather a measure of averages that fit with 19th and earliest 20th century scientific interest in measurements in general. Quetelet never uh, intended the BMI to measure individual or even social health. Despite its long history, the BMI did not gain dominance as a measure of excess weight until late in the 20th century. Prior to that, the measurement and classification of ideal body weights was under the purview of the insurance industry and their measurement of health. Mm. However, given its scientific origins and an even more simplified classificatory scheme based on a single number, the BMI came to be seen by the public health community, the medical profession, and obesity researchers as a better fit than complex insurance tables as a measure of obesity. So the body mass index is all over the child mm -hmm. development research that I did for my segment. It's just mm -hmm. all over it. I skipped over most of it because I know it's nonsense and now I know how much it's nonsense from the 1800s. So yeah, that's the thing is this tool was created in the 1800s <laughs> for something completely different. Literally just to measure. <laughs> yeah, literally just to measure stuff. And then it was adopted by the medical profession because it was easier to understand than the insurance tables. And, and the funny thing is that it's medicine is not simple. That's like, you can simplify it. You can't do you it. Can. <laughs> and the BMI, even though it's been, um, it's since been de debunked, um, I don't have an exact date on when. I don't know, last week? It was not that long ago. Yeah, it started, I think people started talking, the first I'm seeing is an article from like 2009, according to Google. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like pretty recently, people have started to realize like, oh, this is a made up thing that's not actually a viable way to measure how people exist. Um, but I mean, like, again, it's that recent that people still use it, like doctors still use it. I mean, I did it in middle school, in health class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even then I knew, because I'm, I'm almost six feet tall, so it's like thrown off by that. Right. And so I'm like, well, this is clearly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not bad for being tall, so. <laughs> okay, so that brought us up to the contemporary obesity epidemic. But I wanted to go through that whole thing, even though it was long, because I think it does a really good job of highlighting the intersection between um, issues of morality and mm -hmm. pseudoscience and how they have yeah, been yeah, sort yeah. of how they have entered the mainstream medical discourse and become legitimized by it, despite the mm -hmm. fact that there's not a legitimate basis there. And just mm -hmm. as uh, Boreal writes, um, doctors have long acknowledged that fatness is intractable. No one actually knows what makes people weigh more. Mm. Some people just do. Um, 
But as I said, I'm not spending too long on the medical side of things. So that was our little overview. And now I want to move us to the idea of the aesthetic frame, which is a phrase I'm borrowing from Framing Fat, uh, Competing Constructions in Contemporary Culture by Samantha Kwan and Jennifer Graves. Um, when they say constructions, Mike. Okay. When they say constructions, they mean, um, in theory, different ways of constructing how fatness is treated in society mm-hmm. or what makes fatness, basically. They address several frames in this book, but I'm speaking to the aesthetic frame for our purposes. Unlike the other frames, the aesthetic frame has no single cultural producer that we can look to, no clear frame-generating organization, and no specific sets of documents, web pages, or policy statements that articulate its position. Instead, the aesthetic frame is all around us, ubiquitous and prolific, and generated primarily by industries via the mass media. As Sandra Lee Bartke aptly writes in reference to the thin ideal that is so central to the aesthetic frame, it is, quote, everywhere and it is nowhere. The central claim of the aesthetic frame is that the fat body is problematic because it is physically unattractive. Often the central claim is communicated indirectly. For instance, the abundance of thin, firm bodies and the marginalization and exclusion of fat bodies in mainstream commercial advertisements contains the message that fat is undesirable. Some have referred to this absence as a, quote, symbolic annihilation, a term previously applied to racial and ethnic minorities in the mainstream media that has been more recently used to describe the exclusion of fat people from the public eye. They go on to write, the aesthetic frame generates a self-fulfilling prophecy. By perpetuating the notion that fat results from personal failure and diminishes overall quality of life, the frame creates a climate of fat fear and hatred that in turn leads to disdain for and the mistreatment of fat people that may, in fact, diminish quality of life. The creation of this self-fulfilling prophecy ultimately allows the industries of the fashion beauty complex to sell their products and services to fat individuals or those who fear becoming fat and remain profitable. So this idea that um, the aesthetic frame is the mass media, is these images, visual culture that sort of always surrounds us and is inescapable. Um, And through exclusion or dehumanization within these images across types of media, public opinion of fatness Mm. is able, it's sort of like a feedback loop, right? Of these images are dehumanizing. So people's opinions of fatness end up being very negative, which leads to fat people being dehumanized, which just sort of continues the dehumanization in images. (laughs) So that particular uh, book, when they're dealing with the aesthetic frame, they're talking mostly to mass media. I'm mm-hmm. focusing on tropes within uh, fictional media, mostly, and not advertisements, although that's like a whole different conversation. Because what I don't want to do so much is focus on mm-hmm. sort of like this dialogue around yeah. what bodies are represented, because I feel like it dips really quickly into like an anti-femi, anti um Sort of just like the same misogyny, you know what I mean? Like, I feel, I feel like it just ends up being like a, it just ends up being sort of misogyny again, um, just a different type. Yeah, absolutely. A, a, plenty of my articles ended up, I was just like, oh, I think this article just hates women in general. And so, yeah, yeah. So it's a really fraught thing to talk about because it's hard to break down this like it's hard to break down because fat phobia, like this, this what I've been talking about so far with these like images of fatness and how fatness has been handled, of is not like a women's only issue, and it's more than just what bodies look like. It's how people are treated. Also, mm-hmm. it's like it, you know, it's tricky. So I want to move on to this article from um, the Outline by 
Ashiman Idemsedi, but it's uh, How Video Games Demonize Fat People. The subtitle is American's Most Pervasive Cultural Product Rarely Treats Its Audience With Respect. So this is dealing with video games, but I think we've talked about this before, the overlap between like comics and video games and how representation works in those is very similar. Yeah, and Anshuman was a comics publisher, so he's very much, um, he is also coming from comics. Okay, so from How Video Games Demonize Fat People, um, in 2018, the AAA video game remains our most pervasive and powerful cultural product, and yet it almost exclusively depicts the fat body, my body, as a noxious threat, a monstrosity, an object of ridicule, something to be dealt with violently. But why? Games often reflect the culture they're made in, wrote Kiva Bay, a fat activist, in a conversation over Google Docs. Before Trump and the alt-right, we forget that one of the largest and most naked displays of hate was once a subreddit devoted to terrorizing fat people. Although r slash fat people hate drew from the same well as Gamergate, its scope was wider. In the subreddit, pictures of fat people, almost exclusively young women, were shared for open ridicule. He goes on, uh, largely speaking, early video games cast fat bodies as the ubiquitous enemy. The brute, the boss, the escalating threat. Ironically, fatness became a way of visually signaling that an enemy has more health. Imagine a body normative enemy advances towards you. Uh, Todd Harper, who is an assistant professor at the University of Baltimore's program in simulation and digital entertainment, said, You hit it with your sword once and it flickers away. A larger, fatter enemy appears and requires three hits of your sword to kill him because there is simply more of him, which is very much a thing, right? If you are fat in a video game, you are lazy or deluded, often about your looks. Hopelessly bound to the act of consumption and its attendant bodily functions, almost always topless to make clear the fact of your fatness, and if you are blessed with clothes, they are strained to their limits, your belly always finding a way. Fatness, then, isn't just an escalation, Snortlax blocking the root in Pokemon, but a heightened performance of what a developer imagines the world demands fatness to be. The most common mode is fat as a stand-in to show that the character is greedy, to show that a character is slovenly, to show that a character has low moral fiber, says Harper. In other words, fatness is a universal shorthand that ensures a player can both read and read into the systems of a particular game without alienating them. And so we get the qualities we've come to know about fat bodies in games, their lust for food and drink, their greed and corruptible nature. So this is like very one very closely tied to what I was talking about with going back to the 1800s and um, weight being tied to morality, Mm -hmm. but also what we were talking about in episode 12 in design, when character design and using these shorthands of ugliness to show that a character is evil or lazy or a drunk or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like this specifically comes into effect against fat bodies in like a very pernicious way. Um, there's not like a comprehensive overview of these different tropes. There's certain ones that have been identified and written about. Um, a common one is in sitcoms of the character that was fat before the show started and is like a thin character on the show, a la Monica from Friends. That's all, that's super common in comics too. And manga. Yeah, yeah. I actually have an art. I actually have a quote from an article about Monica on Exo Jane uh, by Megan Kirby, written in 2015. It's called uh, "From the One with All the Fat Jokes" or "How Fat Monica on Friends Stuck with Me All These Years." Monica becomes real only when she loses the weight. Before that, she's just a caricature. I was a fat kid. I'm a fatter adult. What does this mean for the girls like me who never become thin? 
Are we relegated to side roles and stereotypes in our own lives? Of course, this isn't true. But I think it's sometimes dark and secret. The fat girl doesn't get to be the protagonist. What does the opposite mean then? To stay fat or horror of horrors get fatter? Does this lessen my successes, the stories I've told, the friends I've made, the life I've built? Sometimes I hear my friends dismiss people we knew as teenagers with, oh, he got fat, and my stomach flips as I wonder what other people must say about me. That's what the fat jokes on friends feel like to me, like someone I know and trust is leaning over to whisper, whisper you matter less because of your body than expecting me to laugh. Um, I also have uh, Dr. Charlotte Cooper, who is a scholar and a fat activist, uh, in 2007, she coined the term the headless fatty trope, mm. which refers to news journalism. Yeah. This was during the, this is, I mean, that, that's still like, I don't want to say the height of, uh, writing about the obesity epidemic. Cause it's still a thing actually in doing research for this. I found an NPR series that was all about, uh, like obesity in America from like, Within the past three years. Yeah. Um, before we started recording, I mentioned to E, because um, my section is going to be about, all about child development. And a lot of it comes from mm -hmm. uh, Michelle Obama's First Lady campaign, which was about child obesity. Mm -hmm. So it's become a topic it, within mm -hmm. that obesity word framework. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the headless fatty trope basically is um, the trend of using, uh, you know, like when you're watching the news and a picture, like a stock photo pops up to go along with it or in a newspaper, using photos of fat people that either have their heads cut out or their faces blurred out. And they usually look like they're not aware of their picture being taken. Dr. Charlotte Cooper, who again coined it, wrote, It's quite bizarre. Fat people are in the news all the time, almost constantly. Obesity returns more than twice as many Google News hits as Madonna. But we are presented as objects, as symbols, as a collective problem, as something to be talked about. Unless we play the game and parrot oppressive, self-hating, medicalized views about fat, fat people's own voices, feelings, thoughts, and opinions about what it is to be fat are entirely absent from the discourse. Um, as headless fatties, the body becomes symbolic. We are there, but we have no voice, not even a mouth and a head, no brain, no thoughts or opinions. Instead, we are reduced and dehumanized as symbols of cultural fear, the body, the belly, the arse, food. There's symbolism, too, in the way that the people in these photographs have been beheaded. It's almost as if we have been punished for existing. Our right to speak has been removed by a purient gaze. Our headless images accompany articles that assume a world without people like us would be a better world altogether. Um, and uh, I think I have one more thing I'm going to talk about <clears throat> before I hand it off. Kind of continuing this conversation about analyzing images of fatness. Mm -hmm. This is an essay called We're Kind of Devolving Visual Tropes of Evolution in Obesity Discourse. It's by Francis Ray White. It's from 2013, but the one I read was published in Obesity Discourse and Fat Politics 2015, which is an anthology. What they're writing about is a specific image uh, that's recreated that is a cartoon parody of the March of Pro Towards Progress, the evolutionary lineup. Can you actually explain what the March Towards Progress image is? Yes. Okay. Okay. So it's a parody of the March Towards um March Towards Progress image of evolution, which is a famous illustration of uh, the evolution of man, basically. So it starts with an ape and then, like, mm -hmm. shows the ape slowly, like, through a sequence of uh, seven images mm -hmm. into an upright walking man. So um, 
this essay is discussing a parody of that image where after the man panel, there is two more men figures that are hunched over and getting like wider. Mm -hmm. And then the final image is a pig. I don't want to put it on the blog. No. <laughs> you can Google it if you want to see no. it. It's <laughs> not going on my website. No, <laughs> I am not comfortable reproducing that image. Okay. The role of images in the discourses of the obesity, quote unquote, epidemic has been relatively neglected in the critical literature, with the exception of Cooper's 2007 critique of the headless fatty trope, which I discussed. There is little work that addresses the considerable power of images to convey complex and implicit messages about fatness, fat people, and the place of fatness in the world. An alternative approach to the fat devolution image is suggested by uh, Weiber's 1998 feminist analysis of images of evolution. She argues that such images, quote, create stories about things, people, animals, and objects which are contested not because nothing is real, but precisely because they become real, making these stories explicit as stories rather than as false or ideologically suspect versions of some underlying reality, may offer a better understanding of the way they work rhetorically. So basically, rather than presenting the devolution image as a, a false version of an actual reality, mm. presenting it as just fake and like the difference that makes. This deconstructive orientation is also taken up by uh, McPhail, 2009, in her analysis of the construction of, quote, abject white male middle class obesity in Cold War era Canada. Her reading of anti-obesity measures as functioning symbolically to re-articulate the breadwinner husband, homemaker wife division of labor, and to reposition Canada as a nation of white middle class nuclear families, not only helps explain the sole representation of white male bodies in the fat devolution image, but also offers a model of how those bodies are constituted within wider societal discourse and anxieties. So again, hearkening back to what the first source I talked about when it was brought up that this uh, focus on fatness and what was used was usually like a middle class to upper class white people, mm -hmm. white women or white men. And like that's a specific political decision mm -hmm. of like framing that type of person as normal and like what should be aspired to. Uh, they go on to write about, and I thought this was interesting, the humor in it, because these images are parodies, quote unquote, and they're presented as meant to be funny. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that fatness is inherently funny is a very common yeah. idea. So given the generally apocalyptic tenor of obesity, quote unquote, epidemic discourses, and the framing of obesity is a step towards the extinction of the human race, it is perhaps curious that the fat devolution images are frequently treated as comedic rather than terrible. Terrifying. A possible reading of this could view laughter working as a mechanism to neutralize the threat of fatness. For example, an examination of comedian Don French's performances, Hole 2003, suggests that the fat female body shifts from being looked at to laughed at in a process which allays its threatening presence. Uh, she argues that the horror, fear, and anxiety which could be produced by the fat female body is diffused by making a jest about slash against the fat woman. So this idea that we have created a medicalized uh, view of fatness as something 
not only immoral, but dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like what this devolution image implies that fatness is going to revert us literally into animals. So the, the like societal reaction to this anxiety that's created through this discourse is to make it funny. Mm-hmm. as like a tool to deal with the anxiety basically mm-hmm. and i think it is all part of just the dehumanization of fatness yeah that's just like what i was talking about at the beginning when children in my comics art class create a fat character the joke is usually just that they are fat and usually i ask you know i just ask them because they're almost always just they're just repeating stuff that they've heard And so it's easy enough for me to just ask if, you know, like what they think about that being funny as and why they think it's funny. And usually it's, they're trying to get me to laugh at it and I don't laugh. So therefore it's Mm -hmm. not funny, you know? Yeah. Cause sharing images like that is like a social learning thing, isn't it? Like sharing humor. Yeah. So it's easy to correct with kids. Yeah. And usually, yeah, usually I'm just like, oh, I don't think that's funny. Um, you know, that's just a person. <laughs> and usually, like, I'm not trying to yeah. shame them or anything. I'm just like, hey, let's, yeah, let's come up with some other ideas. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, E. So now it's time for my segment, which is viewing our topic um, in it, with an educational lens. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. mostly going to be looking at fat phobia and the way it presents uh, the media images and child development and how it affects kids as they're growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, So I also wanted to say during my intro, many of the articles that I cite exhibit some type of fat phobia, either using terms like obesity Mm -hmm. versus normal weight, um, and they sort of Mm. problematize fat children, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's part of what we're doing with Drawing a Dialogue is creating a new point of view. Um, So I'm going to be taking these articles and sort of, you know, creating something new with them. Yeah. So we're talking about child development and body image. Mm -hmm. So what is body image and how is it constructed? So this is from Body Image Eating Disorders and the Media. It's by Hogan and Strasberger from 2008. Body image is a merging of one's outer appearance with perceptions derived from personal and cultural factors. Body image is a multidimensional construct that is influenced by biological, psychologic, and social factors. Thus, an adolescent constructs her or his body image in many ways, incorporating input from family, peers, and media. Mm. So body image is the way a child sees themselves and sees, and usually mm-hmm. that is created through all these different factors, including the media. Mm-hmm. So my next article is television and child development. Um, it's from 2004 and it's by Evra. There's just a couple of quotes. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that a lot of these articles actually use the word obesity when really I think they're just referring to fat people. Like there isn't anything, they don't use the word fat. They use the word obese. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. So I think that's generally where they're coming from. So obesity is far less common among TV characters than in the general population. So he cites a study. Significant association between the amount of television viewed and a preference for thinner bodies and smaller body measurements. Um, So in this article, he's saying that TV characters um, don't reflect the body diverse population. And therefore, Mm -hmm. if you 
they're citing a study. Um, in this study, the subjects had a significant association between the amount of television that they viewed and their preference mm. for thinner bodies. So we're going to move on to kids, right? There's like a really important uh, different uh, child development. I mean, you go from a baby into an adult, right? So there's a lot of developing that happens in between those two things. So it's really important to talk about when we're talking about pre-adolescent kids versus adolescent kids. So teenagers versus elementary age, etc. Um, so in this article, we're talking about pre-adolescent children. So preteens, um, elementary age kids. Um, so this is a content analysis for children's and bo- movies and books. So actually what's in the most popular movies and books, right? Mm-hmm. So this is by Herbazo, Tentalef Dunn, Goki LaRose, and Thompson. It's from 2004. The article is titled Beauty and Thinness Messages in Children's Media, a Content Analysis. It is argued that children are particularly susceptible to media messages and are more likely to perceive the imagery surrounding thinness and fatness on television and other media as real rather than artificial, right? So there's Mm. more of a difficult distinction between what is fictional and what is reality for children. Right. Studies have shown that children overwhelmingly associate positive traits with thin and average-sized figures and negative with obese figures. Again, those are the words that this article uses. And this sort of makes sense um, if we're hearkening back to what E said in their segment and also from our physiognomy episode, sort of that association with fatness with negativity and negative character, negative personality, Um, And that good characters are thin. Right. Previous research in this area has mainly focused on the role of real life television and advertisement, as opposed to media containing animated characters in the development of children's ideal body shape. So that's important, right? So what are comic books doing? They are not going to be real life characters. They're drawn, right? Yeah, yeah. A number of studies also suggest that children's body stereotypes are related to their views of particular body types. The what is beautiful is good stereotype appears to develop in early childhood, a time when positive characteristics are often assigned to figures considered to be physically attractive and negative characteristics are given to obese figures. One study found that preschool Mm. children consider attractive peers to be friendlier and smarter than unattractive peers. So this is preschool for five-year-olds, right? Right. So they chose movies and books from the most popular children's media from Amazon. Like they just looked at the first top 10 books in Amazon in 2004. So it's Babar the Elephant, uh, Blueberries for Sal, Eloise... Gabriella's Song, George and Martha Ginger, Harold and the Purple Crayon, um, et cetera, et cetera, Rapunzel, Seven Brave Women, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, and then they sort of looked for body image related messages and they sort of ranked each, all these books. They sort of give, gave them a check when they hit one of these things, which is, um, you know, at least one female figure is thin, at least one male figure is muscular. Character's love for another character depends on his or her physical appearance. Uh, thinness is associated with positive traits. Mm-hmm. Exercising is depicted as a means of losing weight, as E was talking about. Um, 
it's like a medical thing. Like it's not like true. <laughs> like there's so many different factors. Yeah. Um, obesity is seen as a problem for at least one character. Evil characters have unattractive physical features. Those are just a few examples that they, this study was looking into. So the finding for the content analysis indicate that body image related messages, especially these concerning beauty and thinness, are prevalent in many children's videos and compared to books. So it's more prevalent in videos than the books that they looked at. It is evident that physical appearance frequently takes precedence over other attributes of the characters. The primary determinant of female beauty is physical attractiveness, specifically thinness. Beauty tends to be associated with mm -hmm. goodness and ugliness with evil. These messages may be reinforcing the what is beautiful is good stereotype like we had talked about before. Attractive characters are presented as being more sociable, kind, content, and successful in many of the videos. On the contrary, regardless of whether they were human or animals, a number of the obese characters are presented in a negative manner and appear to be disliked by others. The equation of obesity and negative traits in children's media may be related to the children's stereotypes of the obese. Interestingly, many of the body perceptions of children reflect several of the body stereotypes found in the children's videos and books. So therefore, the children could have the same beliefs that they read in these videos and these books. So they asked the kids what they believed. Mm. Their friendliest um, classmates are the most attractive ones when they're like five, right? Yeah. Thus, children may be acquiring certain views from such media that influence their body shape and size preferences. Specifically, it appears that media aimed at children places greater emphasis on the cultural ideal body shape for females. Repeated exposure to children's media exhibited unrealistic body ideals may lead to young viewers and readers to overestimate the actual prevalence of such body figures and feel pressured to conform to media's perceptions of what the body should look like. Right. Uh, so this one was also important to me. It was really sort of difficult to find unbiased opinion, but it's the mental health of fat children. So like what if society, if children if these images are affecting their beliefs like how is that affecting other kids mm -hmm. so this is just a couple of quotes from this article called designing a group therapy program for coping with childhood weight bias um, it's by panzer and duper is from 2014 there is increasing concern regarding the emotional and social functioning of obese youths many studies have documented that compared with normal weight peers Again, here's the word obese, here's the word normal weight, which is very bogus to me. Yes. Children who are obese are at greater risk for diminished domains of self-esteem, impaired quality of life, and in some instances, psychiatric disorders. However, a more complete understanding of the relationship between obesity and mental health requires a consideration of the role of weight bias in the child's distress as an extensive review of this topic observed. Mm -hmm. Overall, these findings su suggest that the negative psychological outcomes that have at times been connected with heavier body weight may be primarily responsible for the consequence of the negative reactions of others to excess weight. If these negative reactions were substantially limited, then the numerous adverse psychological consequences associated with childhood obesity would be greatly reduced. So basically, if fat phobia didn't exist, fat children would not have psychological consequences for these biases. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. 
And then we're going to go younger Okay. With this article called, Am I Too Fat to Be a Princess? Examining the Effects of Popular Children's Media on Young Girls' Body Image. It's by Hayes and Tantleff Dunn by t- in 2010. Um, so this is a paper about really young children, six and under. Mm-hmm. The aim of this study was to investigate the impact exposure to this type of media. The age of six appears to be a particularly significant age for many children, especially girls, as it is the age during which sociocultural fa- factors appear to begin forming stronger associations with measures of body dissatisfaction. In fact, young children mm. often are seen imitating their favorite sports, movie, or television star, and they appear to exhibit heightened levels of confidence when they engage in this imitative play. This, I love this, okay? Yeah. So basically, this has a lot to do with art education, right? So when these children are imitating, when they are using their imagination and pretending to be these actors or characters that they love... Um, they have heightened levels of confidence. They have so much more confidence in themselves, which is wonderful. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, some of this article that they study, they cite, um, participants uh, identified animated cartoon characters as resembling them more frequently than their own family members. This may be of some concern, given that many popular children's films contain appearance-related messages. So these kids who are pretending uh, say that animated cartoon characters look more like them than their own family members. But part of this has to do with their age. That's interesting. Yeah, because isn't that around the time when they're, I mean, they're first developing a sense of their their body image, like you said. Mm -hmm. So if they don't have like an image of themselves as a, a real human... I, and like he's, you know, you're like more closely attached to these cartoons anyway. I think that definitely yeah. makes sense, <laughs> especially because cartoons are often like really small mm-hmm. and like specifically designed to be very like empathetic. For yeah, kids. yeah, and that's exactly what this article is talking about. Is like what at what age do children start to have that self awareness about their own body image, right? So yeah. at this point, they are relating themselves to cartoons more than a real human. So, <laughs> so they're still mm-hmm. that part of them is still developing, but it's that makes it a really interesting age. Um, so this article actually cites the paper I was talking about before. The researchers noted that good characters often are depicted as beautiful and thin, and attractiveness is associated with sociability, kindness, mm-hmm. contentedness, and success. In contrast, evil is linked more readily to obesity, cruelty, and general unattractiveness. Results of studies conducted by Klein and Scheifman echo these findings, even in animated television shows lasting longer than 30 minutes, right? So this is a lot of our shows. This is a lot of the shows that are being made now. Another study also cited that these number of thin characters depicted in children's animated shows has increased steadily since the 1950s, whereas the number of overweight characters has decreased. Overall, media aimed specifically at children clearly depict an unrealistic, thin ideal. Researchers suggest that the internalization of these images may promote body image disturbance and problem-eating behaviors, just like non-animated media. Mm. So they're saying that just because it's animation, um, just because it's a drawing, does not mean it doesn't have negative effects on body image for children. Yeah. Well, this is actually a fun article because they actually realized that they were wrong. Their hypothesis was wrong and that (laughs) they asked all these five-year-old girls if they believed they could be princesses. And most of them said they could be a princess. (laughs) 
Oh, interesting. So they were too young to have completely internalized. Yeah. Or they didn't have the body image to realize that they they aren't as thin as Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Like, they were like, yeah, of course I'm going to be a princess. I mean, there's a lot of problematic feminism questions that come in with that. Yes. But I just love, I love that most little girls were like, no, I'm going to be a princess. (laughs) It's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so here are the uh, conclusions from this um, article. Collectively, mm-hmm. results of the study and other children's media studies suggest strongly that developmental considerations must be made when defining and investigating body image in children. Despite objective evidence that indicates children's media contains many appearance-related messages that may affect body dissatisfaction, very young girls do not appear to be affected by these messages in any ways comparable to their older counterparts. This may be because at a younger age, children frequently engage in pretend play, so they're adopting the role of the character, and may not be capable of making subtle social comparisons. However, as children become older and more cognitively savvy, They engage less in pretend play, and as a result, may stop identifying themselves as the characters they idolize. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So I'm going back to another um, article, the the Van Evra uh, 2004 article on television and child development, because I think this is really important. So Mm -hmm. five-year-olds think they can all be princesses. And then so they also say that adolescents are also, you know, they're pretty savvy. Right? So another cited study says, uh, found that the teenage girls they studied were quite sophisticated in their realization of media effects and body image in developing their own self-image. These girls said they should like to be thinner, but this did not necessarily mean they were dissatisfied with their own bodies. Their meta-awareness and understanding of media pressure may help them resist such forces. They clearly understood that media images were manipulated and unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So adolescents understood that media's influences on their perceptions. So, I mean, people can contain paradoxes, right? So these kids, these teenagers, they understood that their body images were probably manipulated by the media, like their own perceptions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they understand that the media is fictional. They understand it's wrong, right? But yeah. that also doesn't necessarily mean that those negative feelings don't exist, right? Mm-hmm. So I was sort of wanted to talk about how we can change this perception in the media and how we can help children as they're developing have a positive body image. So this, again, from, I cited this before, this is from Beauty and Thinness, Messages in Children's Media, the Content Analysis Given the potential negative consequences of thinness messages and body stereotypes in popular children's media, there's a need to promote changes in the content of children's media to be more realistic and to portray all body types and sizes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We need to change the media. (laughs) We need to have more body diversity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Another idea is actually promoting media literacy, which is what we were talking about um, with the adolescents before. Mm -hmm. But this is from 1999 article, The Media's Influence on Body Image Disturbance and Eating Disorders um, by Thompson and Heinberg. Given the relationship between the mass media and internalization of sociocultural standards for appearance, 
researchers have proposed possible interventions specifically targeting the negative effect of mass media messages promoting the thin ideal. Suggestions include helping individuals be more discriminating in their use of the mass media, developing strategies to reduce social comparison, and addressing undiscriminating acceptance of the media presentation of the ideal. And I believe this is something I've talked about before on the, on the podcast, where um, you can't control the images that kids see, right? Mm-hmm. But you can um, help them understand media literacy, help them be visually critical, and sort of cultivating that in your students. And then one final idea um, from the same article, A number of media messages must be identified and challenged in preventive programs. These include the notion that beauty is a woman's primary objective, that thinness is crucial for success and happiness, and that it is normal and acceptable for a woman to be ashamed and anxious about her body and appearance. Unfortunately, these messages do not emanate just from media sources. Peers, family, coaches, teachers, and others help reinforce the socialization of women. It is therefore not enough to teach girls and women to reject problematic media messages. Rather, positive redefinitions of femininity as multifaceted and self-accepting need to be promoted, along Mm -hmm. with a desire and skill to resist pressure of for thinness and attractiveness. So it's not just media, it's everyone you need to be a better family you need to be a better friend you need to be a better coach coach Mm -hmm. definitely specifically (laughs) we need to be better (laughs) and this is sort of yeah towards women but i'm sure i'm sure it's um for everyone yeah i mean there's definitely a gender dimension in how uh fat phobia manifests and there's i mean there's also a racial dimension to how fat phobia Mm -hmm. manifests and there's an ableist dimension to it too these things are always intersectional um but yeah, it is definitely just bodies. Be nice about bodies. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's important because um, we have a habit of wanting to just blame the media for stuff, you know. Yes. But who makes the media? We do. So it's it, as adults or as people who are involved in the making of images as cartoonists, we directly maybe then more people are responsible mm-hmm. um, to confront these sorts of things with actual action and not just uh, hand waving and blaming it on mass media. Absolutely. Thank you, Kathy. That was really wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cool. So now it's time for our regular segment, Letters to the Editor. For this segment, usually we sort of bring in uh, sources um, from past topics, um, sort of to bring those back in um, because a topic is never dead. It's always um, continuing. Um, But this time we actually got a lot of letters uh, sent to us um, these last couple months. Yeah. We got this email from Karina. Uh, Karina is talking about episode 12. I'm going to read this section. I would definitely be interested to hear more about the modern racist or at least Western-centric viewpoints that have excluded um, manga, anime, Eastern art from the canon. I think an argument could be made that these how-to-draw manga books made by white Americans hold a large role in the idea that manga or anime style isn't real art. Fortunately, this is slowly changing, but thoughts on this? So I think Karina is... Um, sort of presenting the idea that the how to draw manga books actually assisted mm-hmm. um, making it seem like it isn't real art, which is inter- is like an interesting take. 
that art teachers in North America would see those books as... Because just like I, I don't like how to draw books because I don't think you're actually learning how to see. You're just learning how to copy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I wonder if that's the only way that art teachers... Because I've talked about this before. I've talked about this in my thesis is the ways that Mm -hmm. racism manifests in excluding manga and anime influences from your art classroom in high school. Mm -hmm. But this is an interesting take. Thank you, Karina. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for writing in. And so we got another letter here from James. Oh, this was a good one. Uh, James sent us some, um, what is it? I, They're PDF or there's PDFs and they're um, the thumb drive that they were given from a class they took in college where the professor was a like uh, head of illustration sort of major quote unquote illustrator. Mm -hmm. Um, And how does they describe him as um, he gave us a thumb drive full of old pinup illustrations of white women and stuff from Playboy magazines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, uh, that was sent to us, which is very interesting. Oh. Um, that it, that, uh, the, the, the professor basically said that, um, you had to learn how to draw beautiful women in order to do well in illustration. Yeah. So just that like, this is still like a thing that professors are teaching at the college Yeah, level. that's a direct quote from this 1950s cartooning book that we talked about in episode 12 and it's, yeah, it's still mm-hmm. something professors are teaching, that you have to draw pretty girls. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, the racial aspect of that with, like, at one point he said that Asian people must be drawn with high cheekbones and black women with wide hips. Oof, rough, rough stuff. Yeah. It, should not, it should not be in our schools anymore. It really shouldn't. I'm so, I'm so glad yeah. you got through that, James. Thank you for writing us. So do you want to talk about Dresden? Sure. So uh, we got an email from Dresden also uh, talking about the uh, racism and physiognomy episode. Um, And they sent us uh, info about a book they had to buy for a class they took that is uh, Cartooning the Head and Figure by Jack Ham um, from 1967. I actually looked at this book when I was doing research for this episode Mm. (laughs) because there is some emphasizing the belly as like a way of signifying drunkenness or laziness or whatever Uh. in that book. And yeah, it's just as with the books that Kathy looked at, it was a lot of, in in, uh, episode 12, it was a lot of like this type of face indicates a vixen and this type of face (laughs) is how you, uh, I think one of the images that uh, Dresden sent us was, yeah, it's costumes of many lands and cartoons, and it's just literally like a page of like stereotypes of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. It's rough. <laughs> I mean, mostly European, but there there is like an in, there is like a India, Egypt, Turkey, a Japan. One of them is just quote. It just says quote unquote Aladdin, <laughs> and it's like a cart, like a, a terrible stereotype of like an Aladdin s character. I guess. I mean, um, separate from the Arabia character. I, I mean, at least it's acknowledging it's fictional. I guess. Oh, so just. Rough stuff, but again, uh, something that they had to buy for a class that awful. they took. It's awful. <laughs> so still, still being taught. Yeah. Oh, and oh, also we have a drawing pretty girls page with uh, explanations on yep. what 
uh, pretty noses and pretty eyelashes and pretty lips are all pretty white. Oh, of course. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Dresden. Yeah, so thank love you. Love it. Thank you, Dresden. Don't love it. Love it. Love to hate it. <laughs> And then um, we got an email um, from Fiona about episode six, um, specifically talking about, uh, I think, Kathy, you were the one who very mentally, episode six was the episode we did about the gaze, as in the concept of the male gaze and other gazes. And Kathy specifically briefly brought up uh, boys love manga. Because there's a, people want to talk about the female gaze. Right. Which sort of, I don't know, man, it's, it just feels like reverse sexism like i just i don't know <laughs> yeah um so it just sort of ex- providing a little more info about that um but they they uh were kind enough to uh offer us a source which i i don't believe is, there's an english translation of it but it's uh masami yajima's um the life history of female homosexuals um which is all f- uh first person accounts of uh like young women who later came out as lesbians that liked bl and I just think that's like a very interesting source if you're, especially if you're a person who's interested in that and can read Japanese. Yeah, thank you for sharing that source with us, Fiona. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with your PhD. I'm about yes, to start mine, so I feel you. <laughs> oh, and Ariel, thank you for congratulating us. Thank you, Ariel. <laughs> Ariel, um, has, uh, I we've both worked with Ariel um, researching for this podcast, so thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Great. Thank you for emailing us. You can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. We love getting letters. We love when you send us pictures of bad how to draw yes. books. But yeah, our email is drawingadialogue at gmail.com. <laughs> so I want to thank Downtown Boys for the use of their song Rate of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Yes. So you can head over to drawingadialogue.com to view the citation for this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue. Mm-hmm. That's the weird one. Drawing was too long. You can follow um, me on Twitter at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. I realize... E always spells theirs, but I have never spelled mine. Um, you can hear more about my educational work at comicarted.com. Yeah. Oh, I actually also, I put up on my website, which is ehetcha.com, same as my um, Twitter. Um, I did a little, a bit of writing about, I worked with the Rhode Island School of Art and Design Museum last year from October to January, um, as part of a special exhibition they were doing that involved a, like, open drawing space for museum visitors. So I did a bit of writing and put up a bunch of documentation on that on my website under Museum Inquiry. Um, what's the, what's the writing like? What's it about? Yeah, it's, um, my experiences with the visitors, uh, some about, like, um, the role of museums and like the role of drawing. Um, I actually cite your thesis. Oh. <laughs> um, Thank you. Because I talk, I do talk about like the trauma of drawing. Because a lot of what I did there was working with, um, like to try to encourage people to draw was working with people who like experienced trauma around drawing and were hesitant because of that. Yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability, self expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
everyone head over there and read that. We'll link it. We'll link it. I'll link it in episode 13 citations okay. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then, so my book, The Breakaways. Yes. I just got in the mail yesterday. I just got the galleys. So that's the advanced readers editions that first, second published to get quotes and stuff, I guess, review copies. Um, but it's my new graphic novel. It's coming from first, second, March 5th, 2019. But I'm going to be hyped on that um, until March. I guess until forever, probably. I'll always be hyped. <laughs> forever. <laughs> yes. You can see a preview of it on my website, which is kathygjohn.net. Um, that's it. Thank you so much. Kathy. Yeah. What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading. Oh, no. I'm reading. I've read a lot. Sorry. It's been a couple months. So I read um, a Herman Hesse novel um, called Nope. So I love mm. Herman Hesse. He wrote, he's well known for Steppenwolf, um, Demian, um, mm. Siddhartha. So I'm a big fan. And then I, w- I just got back from a road trip. And so I went to a bunch of used bookstores in Chicago. And so I got this one, Nope, which I hadn't read and hadn't seen. And it's like a very early version of his later book, Narcissus and Goldman. So it's about um, this guy, Nope, who uh, in, in a small German town, because um, he's a German author, and he mm. sort of lives very casual life. He doesn't work. He just writes poems, but he doesn't write them down. He just says them out loud. And it's about how his life has value even though he doesn't work cool and i really loved it yeah so what are you reading e oh i read i read a bunch of not very good books so instead of those i want to say (laughs) so what are these bad books tell them well at the author okay i read gone girl (laughs) which actually i liked i liked gone girl but like it's not great um i have to watch the movie still and i read this book I don't even remember the name of it, and I'm not sure where it is, but I picked it up. I got all these from the book sale that I used to volunteer at before I left Providence, and they were all just, like, the dollar pulps, and I bought a bunch because I was just like, I don't want to think too hard while I read mm-hmm. these. And I got one specifically because the one of the pull quotes on the back described it as being, like, a modern uh, separate piece, which is one of my favorite novels. Okay. It was not. <laughs> it, was ab- it was very much not. <laughs> It was a very clunky. It, I think it just aged badly because it was a. It was written in like two thousand seven. Wait, it, it was, was pulpy in two thousand seven. I mean, no, it wasn't like a pulp oh, book. Okay. It was like a just a paperback. But um, it it was written in two thousand seven. But it was it was about America's relationship with North Korea. Okay. So I I just think unfortunately it aged yeah. very badly. <laughs> huh. Um, but anyway, and I think. I don't remember if there was another one in there. Um, What's the one you didn't want, you actually wanted to talk about? (laughs) I finished, I finally uh, finished the game Near Automata, which is a, um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's it's sort of a JRPG, I guess, uh, Japanese RPG, but it's like a, it's about androids and machines and it's like, it's a very interesting, like the experience mechanically of playing it. Um, the way it does, like it has like multiple endings, and it like sort of moves through time in a way that was like very different from anything I'd ever mm. played or experienced. Um, and it was, I mean, I love 
sci-fi and I love stuff about humanity and androids and robots and stuff, mm. uh, especially when it's smart. Mm-hmm. So it was um, very, very good, very satisfying for me. Cool. This was a video game you were just talking about, right? This was a video game, yes. Awesome. I'm glad you <laughs> liked it. Thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. Hope to see you next month. Yes, for sure. Um, Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye. Ciao.